He is risen. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday, I want to please bear with me. This is going to sound really bizarre as we start out. I told Reagan this morning, I said, I'm going to wander into your field of expertise, not mine. Be gracious to me. Peter Pan is a very interesting story. Isn't it? Reagan? It's a very interesting story. Does anybody not know the Peter Pan story, at least in basic rudimentary level? Yeah, right. It's an interesting story. At its most basic level, it's a story about a kid who doesn't want to grow up. His goal is not to grow up, and he, as a result, has this lives in this fantasy world called Neverland with other lost boys and uh, a fairy and uh, a, a friend who's a girl and um, and then some bad characters. If you remember what the major bad character is, who said it? Captain Hook. Absolutely. Captain Hook. It's an interesting story. It's a very popular story ever since it came into existence. And it's been repeated movies have been made about it. The play has gone on, off and on for well over, about a, century, well over a century now. And um, remains every bit as popular as it ever has been. And yet, oftentimes, most people don't really know the true nature of the story. By the way, when I say the true nature of the story, I'm not talking about the storyline of Peter Pan. I'm talking about the story behind the story. Although the story itself is kind of intriguing as well. There's a lot of subplots going on. I mean, massive amount of subplots in the storyline. But it's, it's generally seen to be this really happy, fun story, isn't it? The truth of the story behind the story is it's actually a really dark, morbid story. That is, the author is in the story, and the story really is a, a, a cleaning up of the story that he told to these kids that were in a different family. I won't get too far into it, but... Um, he was he was a man with a lot of trouble. The author, he was a very troubled man in a variety of ways. Got married, although he was afraid of marriage. And then his wife left him because the, on one level the marriage she divorced him on one level because the marriage was very incompatible on another level because she fell in love with somebody else. After that happened, he became attached to another family. The family that he became attached to was a complete family, husband and wife. The husband was very busy as an attorney and not around much. Um, and so he connected primarily with the kids. And he developed a relationship with the children, a very intense relationship with the, with the children, as it turned out. Um, and, and it was very consuming to him. And as he spent, he met the kids in a park, the children and the mom in the park. And he began to develop this relationship. He began to tell them stories. That's how they developed the relationship. He was telling them stories. And they were very, very intense, very personal uh, stories that were at, at a children's level. 
And he kind of acted them out at the same time. And so the kids were really drawn to him. One of the kids' names, by the way, was Peter. His last name was not Pam. I'm not getting into where Pam came from. That doesn't matter. But after a while, what happened was the husband died. And they became even closer to the family. He actually bought an engagement ring to marry the mom. She died of cancer. When she was dying, as part of her last will and testament, the children went to him to care for her. And so he raised, he finished raising the children. Now there's a lot of things, other things going on. Ultimately, the kids didn't really like him. Early on they did, but later on, when he was their care, caretaker and all, they didn't really like him, like him. One of the kids, though, died in World War I in battle. Peter lived to 1960. He committed suicide in 1960. There's questions about why he committed suicide. Many people believe he committed suicide because he got tired of living up to Peter Pan because he was known as Peter Pan. People would call him Peter Pan and treated him as if he was Peter Pan. And he did not want to be known that way because he did not like, ultimately, the man who was the author. So it was a really dark story. In the story itself, it's also very intriguing. Lots of subplots again. But one of the interesting plots is twofold. One of the interesting major plots, one of which you probably will know very well, and the other one you'll probably know if you've seen one of the recent movies, Finding Neverland. If you haven't seen Finding Neverland, you may never have picked up on this one. I never did until I saw it. I don't know if you ever did before you saw it in Finding Neverland or not. But um, On the one hand, you have Peter Pan not wanting to grow up, right? And some, sometimes he's presented obnoxiously, and other times he's presented as just a carefree kid, right? But he doesn't want to grow up. And he's doing everything he can not to grow up, right? On the other hand, you have Captain Hook. And Captain Hook is, anybody know, what's his, what is his life goal, it seems like? What's his life goal? Reagan, you can answer, right? No? Anybody? What's get Captain Peter Hook's Pan. life goal? What? To get Peter Pan. To catch Peter Pan, right? To capture Peter Pan. You make me feel good now, right? How you make me feel good? <laughs> to capture Peter Pan, and he's chasing him all the time, but he can't seem to quite catch him ever. Because Peter Pan's just a little bit quicker, or a little bit more crafty, or wily, he's always able to escape. But the plot doesn't end there because there's something after Captain Hook, isn't there? What's after Captain Hook? The crocodile. The crocodile is after Captain Hook all the time. As Captain Hook begins to chase Peter Pan, inevitably, the crocodile shows up. Now, of course, if you know the story of Peter Pan, you know that there's something going on with the crocodile, right? What's going on with the crocodile? What happened early on in, in, in the story of Peter Pan and the crocodile? There's a clock he swallowed, right? And that clock, every usually even before you see, if you watch any of the movies, even or if you read the book, even before you read or see the crocodile, usually the first thing you know about, the first hint you have the crocodile is coming is what? 
you hear the tick-tock. And slowly but surely, as you start to hear the tick-tock grow in, in, in loudness and sound, suddenly here's the crocodile coming after Captain Hook. And ultimately, as much as Captain Hook wants to capture Peter Pan, what he wants even more is what? To avoid the crocodile. He's doing everything he can to avoid the crocodile. And the hint in the storyline is, although it doesn't actually graphically reveal it, ultimately, guess what happens? The crocodile gets Captain Hook. What's that all about? Well, it's interesting because there's two major plots. On the one hand, you have Captain Hook desperately trying to avoid the crocodile. What does the crocodile represent? Simply what? Death. The clock ticking is the inevitability of something coming. You hear the clock ticking, it is the inevitability. Death is charging after Captain Hook. Oh, by the way, the one thing I didn't tell you, Captain Hook in the storyline is a representation of the author. Most people don't realize that, but in Captain Hook, he's, his hook is on his right hand. The author had, had uh, a really bad case of tendonitis in his right, right arm, and so his right hand was useless. Totally useless. That's why his Captain Hook is the uh, uh, the uh, the author, and the author's writing about himself there, because as an adult, he's not like Peter. Peter's this young, vibrant kid, and he knows death is approaching, and it's inevitable, and the clock is always ticking, and eventually Captain. I'm sorry, eventually Crocodile's going to get him. But Peter Pan, the other side of the coin, is in Neverland. And he's never going to grow up. And the implication of never growing up is not simply about never becoming mature, but always having fun. Although that's what everybody thinks. Growing up, not growing up is the avoid it's the same exact avoidance as who? Captain Hook. He's doing the exact same thing. He doesn't want to grow up because when you grow up, there's some things you have to realize, you have to face, right? What do you have to face? Death. What happened to his dad? Death. What happened to his mom? Death. Stay in Neverland, you never have to grow up, which means you never have to face death of those you love, and ultimately, you never have to face death, period. Which makes it extra intriguing that Peter Pan suicide. Why do I tell you that story? It's Resurrection Sunday. Kind of weird to bring Peter Pan into Resurrection Sunday, isn't it? Because that's the dilemma, isn't it? Isn't Peter Pan the dilemma of life? We were born into this world as fallen creatures according to the scriptures. Doomed. We were born in sin. We were born cursed. The Bible tells us that we, because of the sin of Adam, receive the consequence of that, the curse. And one of the results of that curse is ultimately what? Death. The clock is ticking. The crocodile is chasing. Every one of us. Some of us feel it. Some of us don't yet. 
box still taking place. It's still there. The crocodile is still chased. And eventually the crocodile is going to get you. I don't care if you're Emma or Jim. Not to pick on you, Jim. Choosing the youngest. I was just picking the youngest and the most mature. The crocodile is coming. The ticking is forever until that point. If I may just say this, this is what makes Good Friday so good. Right? Because the crocodile that's chasing us is not primarily physical. It's not physical crocodile as a word. Spiritual crocodile. And it's not just chasing us, it has us. We're born in sin. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Crocodile already got us. From conception, the crocodile already got us, spiritually speaking, didn't it? Physically, it's after us. And unless, unless the Lord returns before we die, it will get us. We will die, every one of us, physically. Crocodile still charging. But what makes Good Friday so good is what? That the second crocodile, if I use the Peter Pan term, the scriptures call it the second death, right? The second crocodile won't get those who are in Christ. Can't. Because it got Christ. He got the cross. And that's what makes it so good. But he didn't just die, did he? See, ultimately the crocodile couldn't get Jesus, right? Right? Does that make sense what I'm saying? I'm not trying to trivialize. I'm just using the illustration. Ultimately the crocodile couldn't get Jesus, could he? Why not? Because what happened in three days? He rose again. The, cro the death could not keep him down. Amen? Here's what's really weird. We're going to get off Peter Pan. I just wanted to introduce the whole thing with Peter Pan because I find the storyline very intriguing. Christianity is an interesting religion in a variety of ways. Very intriguing in a many, many, many ways. But one of the things that has always troubled me and recently has started to gel a little bit more for me is... <laughs> In Christianity, we every year celebrate Christmas. We've talked about this before. Every year we celebrate Christmas. And it usually starts the day after Thanksgiving, unless you're going to Santa's local Walmart. It starts usually around September, middle of September or so. Um, but generally speaking, Thanksgiving through New Year, generally speaking, we celebrate Christ's birth, don't we? And we talk about it throughout the year in a variety of ways. We sing songs about it. Um, and we, we look forward to it and all the rest. With regard to his crucifixion, we celebrate it on what we call Good Friday, right? Not a whole lot of lead up to it for most Christians, although probably the Christian calendar is a lot more lead up than, than what we recognize it to. There's no problem there is. But, but Christians and non-saved and unsaved people will oftentimes demonstrate an understanding or at least a a reverence of Good Friday by doing several things. Any idea what? What? Anybody? Lent. Lent. What else? Less significant things. 
lot of Christians and a lot of unsaved people will wear crosses. Right? Make sense? And then when it comes to Christians, we will come to church and oftentimes we'll sing about Calvary. Won't we? We'll sing songs about Calvary or Mount Calvary. Many people will name their churches Calvary Baptist, Calvary Bible, Calvary Presbyterian, or whatever, right? Calvary is a very common name to name a church, for example. And there's many other ways in which we recognize the crucifixion. When people tell stories about their own testimony when they got saved, they will somewhere along the line talk about Jesus, fill in, fill in the blank, Jesus, anybody? Dying for me, right? We're talking about Calvary. We're talking about the crucifixion. Help me out. Work with me here. We're talking about the crucifixion. We'll talk about Jesus dying for me, right? And appropriately so, correct? It's absolutely appropriate. In the Catholic Church, they do the sign of the cross, and sometimes some other church groups do it as well. But oftentimes, when we talk about Christianity, we'll talk about crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ. You'll hear messages preached coming into the crucifixion, the, the Passion Week, and, and they'll be talking about the horrors of the crucifixion, correct? All the horrors of the crucifixion. So crucifixion is in Christianity very front and center, isn't it? And rightfully so. We rejoice in that, right? We absolutely do. If Christ had not died, we would still be lost in our sins, correct? No question. We needed a redeemer. We needed, the scriptures tell us, we needed a perfect sacrificial lamb. As pictured with Abraham and Isaac up on top of the mountain, for example, as well as many other places. But you know what's intriguing about Christianity? If I would choose the example, many Christians will wear crosses. When was the last time you saw a Christian wearing a necklace, for example, a Christian woman wearing a necklace with an open tomb. Anybody ever seen anything like that? Stone rolled away? Anybody ever seen anything like that? Why not? Why not? It's an intriguing question. Just want to throw that out there. Resurrection shows up on Easter. We talk about resurrection on Easter. But you know what's interesting? Is most times we don't talk about resurrection as near as much as we talk about crucifixion. Messages about resurrection show up on Easter, right? But they don't show up near as much the rest of the year, do they? Right? They don't kind of pop up that much. Discussions about resurrection don't show up that much in our conversation. Crucifixion will. You ever ask yourself why? It's an intriguing question. Why? For example, what day is today? I know it's Easter, it's Resurrection Day. I mean, a day of the week. It is Sunday. Sunday. In the Old Testament, they worshipped on Saturday. Saturday. But it, the scriptures record that in the New Testament, the apostles gathered together when? It was called the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. Why would they do that? Because it was Resurrection Day, right? That's the day Christ resurrected, the first day. You ever ask yourself, why did the apostles gather on the, on the fifth day? Why would they gather on the fifth day? Crucifixion is important, isn't it? 
Christ's crucifixion is really important, right? At the end of the first, not the fifth day. Just a thought. But more importantly, when you read the New Testament, here's something I want to throw out to you, challenge your thinking. When you read the New Testament, when I say the New Testament, for, for, for sake of discussion in this morning's message, Ignoring the or ignoring the Gospels because the Gospels, for the most part, are leading up to crucifixion, resurrection, right? And then there's the crucifixion slash resurrection. Forty days, Christ goes back to heaven. Then we come to the Book of Acts, correct? From Acts to Revelation, quiz time. Let's talk about more crucifixion or resurrection. Do you think? Resurrection. Can I just submit to you? I don't know what the percentages are. Never took taking the time to actually work on the on, on the percentages. I would bet if I, if someone ever took the time to work it through Acts through Revelation, you're going to find at least seventy five to eighty percent of the time when when either crucifixion or resurrection is discussed or hinted at or or stated, it's resurrection. It's almost inevitably resurrection. Not to minimize, not to minimize the crucifixion. Crucifixion is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. But the resurrection is one of the absolute central themes of the New Testament. Just a thought. I wonder how much our worship would be different if we came to church thinking about and considering and pondering, cogitating on the resurrection if we came to church, on our way to church. Thinking about the ramifications of the resurrection. Because resurrection really is the, the, the theme, the front and center theme. Paul, Peter, John. It's really clear. Luke. The book of Acts just drips resurrection. So the question comes up then on our Resurrection Sunday. What's the big deal about the resurrection? Now the easy answer to the, I, the question, what's the big deal about the resurrection, is the answer that is usually given. And it's a right answer. It's not the complete answer, but it is a right answer. The, the, the answer that's usually given is it's proof that what Jesus did on the cross, crucifixion, had its effect. It was real. And that's a true answer. That's absolutely correct. Not complete, but it is correct. Take your scriptures and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's many places we could go this morning. There are just so many places we could go this morning. But we will not for sake of time. Because I suspect like our family, your family probably has a, a, a dinner with somebody today. And uh, so I'm going to try to keep it as brief as possible this morning because... I've got over 20 people coming to my house, and i got to cook. Ruth and I have to cook some food yet and do some final cleaning, so pressure is on. I'd like to read all of 1 Corinthians 15 with you, if you could just follow along. You know, my words may or may not be important, but this I do know. Or let me say also, my words may or may not be right, but this I know, God's word is inspired. And this I know God's word is always right. 
So I'm going to, we're going to read through 1 Corinthians 15, then we're going to go back and wander through it. I can't talk about everything. I'm only going to talk about a few things. I'm just going to touch on them. And I'm hoping that this is going to be some sort of primer for you to read, study this idea, starting in 1 Corinthians 15 and going from there throughout the New Testament. So follow along as I read. Now I would remind you, brethren, Paul writes, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I just changed my mind. I'm not going to read it twice. I'm only going to read it once. And we're going to stop as we go. I want you to notice, so bear with me. I'm on the fly here. I hope you don't mind. We're family, right? We can do this. I want you to notice something already in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I want, I would remind you. So, it's something that he expects the, the, the recipient of this letter to already know. In this messed up church called Corinth. In the city of Corinth. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's a crucial statement. The gospel. The good news. So, you'd expect from here on out, in chapter 15, he's going to talk about what? The gospel. Correct? You're expected to talk about the gospel. That's a good assumption you guys are thinking today. Which you received, in which you stand. What do you think that means? This is going to be interactive a little bit this morning, too. What do you think that means, in which you stand? It's what you believe. Your foundation, what you believe, identity. your identity, it's where you live, right? It's where you live, or if I can quote the scriptures, in which we live and move and have our being. Have our being. It's the idea. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Interesting cho- choice of words here. Notice he didn't say have been saved or are saved, past tense with continuing ramifications. Are being saved, very important term, ongoing, referencing what and what, do you think? Our justification and our sanctification both, and our ultimate glorification. Good. Then he throws in the caveat, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He's going to develop the idea of believing in vain a little later on. But whatever comes after, one of the things we can be sure of is this. Whatever this gospel is that Paul is writing about, it's something he what to them? He preached to them. So what he's going to talk about after this is just reminding them of what he's preached to them. Moving on into verse 3. For I delivered to you as what? As of first importance, what I also received, and the first thing he states is what? That Christ died, why? For your sins. You see that? For our sins, I'm sorry. And then the next phrase is what? In, In accordance with the scriptures. And then verse 4, that he was what? buried, stop there. Once we get to that, for the most part, for the remainder of the chapter, he's never going to mention it again. That's intriguing. He's talking about the gospel. 
He certainly starts out with several pieces of information that are absolutely crucial. What are the pieces of information that he gave us in verse 3 that is of first importance? In verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, he gave us several things. Christ died. He's declaring it as a fact. Christ died. But it wasn't any normal, just course of life death. Why did he die? Because we're sinners, right? Because we're sinners. So he's dying for our sins or because of our sins. And then he says, well, you already say, Ken, in accordance with the scriptures, that's not primarily referencing the gospel accounts of his actual death and, and burial. It's, it's, it's referencing the prophecies of the Old Testament. They're being fulfilled. In, they were fulfilled in Christ. And he was buried. That's it on that section. Death, burial. That's first importance, right? That's all first importance. We're sinners. He died for our sins and was buried. First importance. But that's not the end of the first importance. Along with that, the first importance continues. That he was buried, in verse 4, that he was raised up or raised on the third day and he throws the caveat uh, the statement out again which is what according to, according to the scriptures and the idea of that again is the same idea of referencing the prophecies of the old testament he's fulfilling of first importance he's fulfilling the prophecies continuing he says and then he appeared to cephas who's cephas Peter. He appeared to Cephas. This is all resurrection stuff. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are what? We're still alive when he wrote this. Most of those 500 were still alive when he wrote this. The some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And of course, when you hear that, you, you, there's two things that come up. Number one is the salvation, correct? They're on the road to Damascus. But it's also his time out in the wilderness. As he fellowship with Jesus and Jesus taught him and prepared him for his ministry. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach, and you also believe. To preach what? The gospel, or to put it a different way, Paul is saying, I preached the first, the things of first importance, which means what? Death, for sins, burial, resurrection. Now he moves on, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? controversy in the church at that point in time. 
Some in the church saying there's no resurrection. But if there is no, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's raised. It is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous, Paul is saying, to, be, to claim to be a Christian, to come to church on Sunday, and do all the things of Christianity and have all the, the makings of, of Christianity in your life if there is no resurrection. What's the point of it? That's what he's going to develop now. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You get a little sense right now? Resurrection is of first importance. What did Paul just say? If Christ died, let's find process it through. If Christ died according to the scriptures, this is what Paul's arguing. If Christ died even in accordance with the scriptures, all the prophecies, if he died for your sins and mine, and he didn't resurrect from the dead, your religion is worthless. That's what it means. It's worthless. It's empty. Your faith is in vain. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, talking about himself and the other apostles, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, and, by the way, the people who supposedly brought you the gospel, Paul, Peter, and all the rest of them, they're all just a bunch of liars. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, there is no good news. There is no good news without the resurrection. None. That's Paul's argument. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, verse 17, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You can't get past it. The resurrection is of first importance. I don't care what the prophecy said, Paul is saying, about Christ coming to this planet, living the perfect God-man life, dying for your sins, receiving the wrath of God. If he is not raised, you're still in your sins. There's a number of ways to understand this. Any one of these could be true. It could be that, that Paul's saying that, that Christ's work on the cross amounted to nothing, had no power. That makes sense so far? It didn't do what he said it was going to do. On the other hand, and we're going to see this as we develop, and I think it's more likely the case, that his death could have the power to cleanse us from the sin, but ultimately, we're still left. Because... In the best of our days, do we have any ability to approach the throne of God by ourselves? No. We need what? Christ's righteousness, don't we? We don't have that if he was never raised. We don't have that. He is not our advocate. There's no righteousness available. So we're still doing it. No matter how you slice it, without the resurrection, we're still doomed. You're still in your sins. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If Christ, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, because that's all we would have if Christ didn't resurrect. It's hope in Christ for this life only. It's as, all we can say is what that stupid saying is that people, I hear Christians say all the time, you know, if the things of, of, of the scriptures and Christianity isn't true, well, I still had a great life. I've heard that said by many, many people. If at the end of the day, it, it turns out that it's not true, I still had a great life. And you had nothing. Are you kidding? That's not Paul's argument. His argument is if we, if in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be what? What? Most pitied. Because we lived according to a lie. We, we become completely and utterly deceived in every way. We are most pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. It's referring to first Adam, second Adam. The first Adam, Adam, the man, sin came into the world, and death as a result. That's what he's talking about there. For as by a man came death. By a man, the second Adam, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is one of those classic passages that all don't mean all. This is not universalism. It's referring to those who are in Christ, all who are in Christ. Because all are in Adam. Correct? All because of physical birth are naturally in Adam. He's our first father as it were. Scriptures are very clear, Romans 1, 2, and 3. So that's the idea here when he says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's all those in Christ. All in Adam, dead. All in Christ shall be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits. This presupposes the, the truth, the reality, Christ's resurrection. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. There's a few things yet for him to do, correct? We get that, right? You read Revelation, you get it. But the idea is if Christ rose from the dead, then those who are his will also resurrect from the dead. He moves on. For verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's reigning. This idea that rolls around in Christianity that there he will reign someday. He is reigning. He is actively putting all of his enemies under his feet and ultimately they will all be under his feet. Under his feet is a picture of absolute domination. That's the picture. It's an Old Testament picture, actually. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex accepting who put all things in subjection under him. He's talking about the Father here. God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Otherwise, verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? In the pagan world, back in Paul's day, they were baptizing for the dead. Why would they do that, he said, he's saying. Why would they do that? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptizing on their behalf? What is he saying? Even pagans know that. There has to be something more than just this world, just this life. And they're baptizing for the dead. So he's troubled that in the church, there's some people who don't believe in resurrection, by the way. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Why is Paul saying I die every day? Any idea? Because his hope is in, yes, Jesus, but his hope is in the resurrection. resurrection based upon the reality and the truth of Christ's resurrection. Verse 32. Well, before I get to 32, in other words, for Paul, because his hope is in the resurrection, he's perfectly fine with dying every day. It's an intriguing thought. It, it, what Paul is arguing, if I may just stop on 31 for a second, what Paul is arguing here, in, in effect, is this. Paul is saying, I believe of first importance that Christ died for my sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. How do I know I believe that? Because I die every day. I die every day. What does that mean? When Paul says I die every day. Paul's saying, when I realize that Christ died for my sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and I know the ramifications of his dying, one of which, or his resurrection, one of the which, according to the scriptures, is I will one day also be resurrected. For Paul, his point, serious, I'm being totally serious here. His point is, the only conclusion I can come to when I think about and meditate on and dwell on the resurrection and all of its ramifications is dying's no big deal. Interesting, isn't it? That's his perspective. Now, i got to throw one caveat in there. One more caveat to it. He's saying, I'm going to die every day. But it's not dying every day by being stupid. Is it? That's not what he's talking about, is it? He's not dying every day by, by um, hopping on a motorcycle and doing 160 miles an hour down the road. Is that it? Well, not for Paul, because there were no motorcycles. But you get my point. Because where's his focus? What's first importance again? Christ. Christ dying for my sins, being buried, resurrected. And when I, when my, Paul is saying, when my focus on the first important stuff, the ramifications of the focus on the first important stuff, and for Paul, the big emphasis, if you don't believe it, read Acts, it's really clear, again, the big emphasis for Paul is he focused on those three things the most important. He died, or four things, he died, however many things, he died for my sins, was buried, and resurrected, four things. 
He says, when I'm focused on those, I'm primarily focused on which one? Resurrection. As a result, I'm okay with dying, but the caveat is for Christ. Because here's the thing I've got confidence in. I'll be resurrected and be with him. No cost. Just benefit. Just yield. That's Paul's perspective. I die every day. He's not bragging. He's bragging on anything. He's bragging on the resurrection. Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? That are not raised. What do I gain by that? What's the gain? Maybe the fighting with beasts and Ephesus mean nothing to you. But we could choose any of Paul's stories that maybe are a little more common. What does it gain Paul to be drug out of the city and stoned? There's no resurrection. What's the gain? If there's no resurrection, what's the gain? There's nothing. What's the gain? To be thrown in prison and be beaten to within an inch of your life and you don't know if you're going to live or die. If there's no resurrection, what's the gain? Nothing. Here's what's intriguing. From, from Paul's perspective, he believes by faith that there is gain. Doesn't he? Now, wait, here's what's really cool about the resurrection. What's amazing, when people believe the resurrection, it changes everything, doesn't it? It has to. For Paul, I believe in the resurrection. Christ rose again. I will rise again as well. He resurrected. I will because he will bring me from the dead to be with him. He's coming back for me. He's coming back for you if you're a believer. He's going to do what when he comes back for us? He's going to... Take us to be with him. How long? Forevermore. What's the scripture say, right? John. Now this is a little rough I'm going to throw out. Most of the message today is to be heard. It's a little rough. What that means is, if I'm not willing to die daily for Christ, to be a light in the midst of a dark dark world, to be light in the midst of a dark neighborhood, to be light in the midst of a dark workplace, to be light in the midst of a dark anything, fill in the blank. You know why I'm not willing to? Because functionally speaking, I don't believe in a resurrection. That's why. The reason why we don't speak truth and proclaim truth is because we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't remember it. It's not of first importance. Slice it any way you want to. It's not of first importance. Because if it's of first importance, what are we going to do? We're going to be willing to die daily, right? We will willingly die daily. This is why I'm putting on Resurrection Sunday, I'm putting the resurrection front and center. It's absolutely essential that we get this. It's front and center because it and it alone is what radically transforms us as we remember and understand 
and delve into the realities of Christ's resurrection. Because well, we're going to find out in a little bit, he saved us to blank of life. Anybody know what the word is? Newness. Newness of life. A different life, right? It's a resurrected life. We're going to find out in a few minutes. So Paul says, again, verse 32, what do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If, if the dead are not raised, but if the dead are raised, then it's, his point is, the opposite, if the dead are raised, then it is a really worthy and worthwhile thing to do, isn't it? To fight with beasts in Ephesus? Or to change the story again? What good is it for Daniel to pray after he was forbidden to pray what good did it do him if there's no resurrection? Now, he didn't die. But he didn't know that. He didn't know he wasn't going to die. When they arrested him and threw him to the lions, what is he basing that on? Prophecies according to the scriptures. He says, no. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had no idea if they'd be burned up or not. Resurrection, more important. Christ, more important. And those are people pre-resurrection. Just depending upon the veiled prophecies they've been given. Let us eat, continuing in verse 32. Let us eat, drink. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Does that make sense? If the resurrection is true. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Ouch. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church with regard to the resurrection. He rebukes the Corinthian church here. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good more or ruins good morals. What bad company is he referring to? What do you think? We've, we've, we've taken this passage to mean all sorts of things. What do you think the, the bad company is? Any ideas? More specific. Who, are the, who, are the, who is the bad company here? No, it's not the unbelievers. Yes! People who are claiming to be believers but are denying the resurrection. That's the bad company. And let me just throw it out here. It's not as easy to, to slice this pie as we think it is. Or, for today, to slice the coffee cake. It's not as easy as we think it is. Because Paul's not just talking about people getting up and saying, Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to service this morning. Uh, today, we're not really looking at the scriptures because I want to declare something. There is no resurrection. Amen? No resurrection. Christ did not raise from the dead. Amen? That may have been going on a little bit in Paul's day, but he's talking more about functionality than he is outright declarations. He's talking about how people function much more so. How they live life much more so. Than outright declarations. You can get a sense of it here. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. 
And he goes on and says what? For some have no knowledge of God. Who is these some? Again, it's Christians, people who claim to be Christians, but they functionally speaking don't know or agree with the, re the resurrection. They may give lip service to it, but what are they doing? They're going and sinning. Now, this is really important. For some have no knowledge of God. Who is this up? Those who claim to be believers, but they're functionally living as if there is no resurrection. And he's saying, that's going on in your churches, and I say it to your shame. Now, what is he? can we develop a little bit further here? Yeah, I think we can. I said that resurrection, the idea of resurrection is much more broad than what we typically take it to be. Philippians chapter 3 makes that really clear. And other places do as well. Take your scriptures real quick and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse, for sake of time, we'll jump to 10. Uh, no, skip, uh, jump, jump back to 7. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that from God depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection that I may share and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection, there it is again, of the dead. So going back to 1 Corinthians again, when he says, wake up from your stu drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this idea that I may know the power of his resurrection is absolutely essential. When he says that I may know the power of his resurrection, he's talking about that I may know the power of resurrection living. <clears throat> what is resurrection living? That's what he's talking about. Resurrection living is living that evidences itself that the Spirit is at work in our life transforming us. This is not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. God says, i got to do this. So I better do this. God says, i got to do that. I better do that. And on and on. No. When I... By the power of the gospel, grace through faith, am transformed and brought from death to life. And he saves me. That's my first resurrection, isn't it? It's my first resurrection, based upon the resurrection of Christ. He gives me a new heart. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Give me a soft, fleshy heart. He gives me a heart that, that loves what I once hated. And I hate what I once loved in a growing way as the Spirit works in my life. And because of that first resurrection going from death to life and all the ramifications of that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I begin to be transformed. That's the power of the resurrection. 
The power, of, the power of the resurrection that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 is the power of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me so that I don't go on sinning. Now we're back to 1 Corinthians. That is resurrection power. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Don't be deceived. Bad company. Hanging around with people who, functionally speaking, the way they live their lives, demonstrate they don't believe in the resurrection. They may say they do, but they don't demonstrate they believe in the resurrection by having what? Resurrection power. That says, I'm willing to die daily. And I love dying daily for Christ. Because I know what he's promised. I know who he is. I know he's accomplished and all the rest. I don't cower in fear anymore. And on and on and on. That's why he writes to the Corinthian churches, wake up from your drunken stupor. Drunkenness is all, what a great picture. Not drunk, not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Resurrection power. Wake up. As is right. Do not go on sinning because it's incoherent with resurrection power. And he says to the Corinthian church, I say this to your shame because y'all functionally don't believe, is what he's saying to the Corinthian church. Y'all don't believe, functionally speaking, you don't believe in the resurrection. Verse 35, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? We're going to fly through this section. With what kind of body do they come, you foolish person? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body, but what it is to be, but a bare, uh, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Basic picture, when you, when you plant a seed, what comes out is not a seed. Correct? I got a bunch of trees growing, I planted. They weren't, I didn't plant them from seed. I got a bunch of trees that I planted in my yard. Uh, paper birches and, and quaking aspens. I love both trees. I planted a bunch of them. I, when I got them, they were this tall, two years ago. They weren't much to look at. They were just a stick. They, had not, they, they didn't have any branch signs. Just a stick. No leaves, stick, just a stick. I started going, kind of silly to put sticks in the ground. And I thought, even that is better than just a seed, right? That's a little more hopeful than just a seed. But now you look at them, it's like branches everywhere, leaves full, beautiful. But yet even now I know it's, it's, it's only it's about 10 feet high. They grow fast. But in about another five or six years, it's going to be a massive can canopy, nice shade. It's going to be beautiful. White paper birch bark on it. It's going to be absolutely stunning. It just started out of the sea. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. But what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Now, in the story I just told you about the trees I planted, you get the idea? Because he's, he's talking about resurrection, right? He's talking about resurrection. And what comes out of the seed dying is something radically different from the seed. And it produces more seeds, as we know. But it looks radically different. That's what he's talking about. If we die, he died, rose again. For us to be resurrected, we have to die. We're already dead. But 
When he makes it alive, what happens? Something else comes out. That's the point. Something else comes out. And ultimately, even more so, in the second resurrection. Verse 38, but God gives a body that as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly, of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now he's, he's talking primarily about the, the ultimate, our physical death and the result of it. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a supernatural body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Can I just pause for a second? I don't get in real deep on this one. But let me just say this. I, I already talked about two resurrections, right? For us. First is from death to life, and then from this world to the next. Or from natural to supernatural. Right? Get the idea? But both evidence the same, right? He's, he's talking about ultimate physical death here. But he says, we're now natural. We'll be radically different, right? Wouldn't, if that's true, would you expect that our first resurrection would be radically different as well? Would you expect that? If the second one's going to be radically different, would you expect the first one to be radically different? Now, some would say, well, what about Jesus? Well, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus radically different post-resurrection than he was pre-resurrection? Yes. In any number of ways. Yes. Read the, read the gospel accounts. It's very clear. Radically different. And then going back to glory, he was really radically different. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And to stop on verse 45, because this one really important. Be quick. The first Adam became a life... I'm sorry. The first Adam became a life... A living being, right? You remember the story? God gathered the dust of the ground, right? You know what he did? He gathered dust. And he made Adam out of dust. And he breathed into his nostrils. And he became alive. That's the story in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, right? But notice, that's the first Adam. And according to... For the first Adam stuff, we came from dust and... The dust will return. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this is really important. Why did the last Adam become a life-giving spirit? It's because of the resurrection. The whole point of this is because of the resurrection, he became a life-giving spirit. He, whereas the first Adam brought dust, didn't he? Because of death, because of sin. Second Adam, through his death, brings life. He's a life-giving spirit. And that life he's talking about is the life like Paul described earlier about dying daily. Life. Radically different life. Not just a seed. Verse 46. 
But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. You get the comparison. It's there, isn't it? What I just said is there. Those of dust are dust. Those of heaven are heaven. Are of heaven. The people that are just of dust, those who are not saved, all they exhibit is what? Dust. That's all they exhibit. They just exhibit natural stuff, in other words. But he says those that come because of the one who came from heaven, who are of the one who came from heaven, those people also become of heaven. Therefore, the idea is they... Remember we just described how stars are different and, and, and plants are different and trees are different and animals are different. They are different as well. This is what resurrection power is. This is what the resurrection does. It transforms. The, the resurrection of Christ is the transformative work of Christ in those who are his children. Just as we have been born... Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And that's not only talking about when we're in heaven. Let's talk about now. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Can I just stop for just a second and say this? Why is this passage only read at graveside services? It's like this should be read every Sunday. Resurrection Day. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And the only way we can do this is because Christ was resurrected. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Let me just pause on that real quick. It's really easy to read this text and you say, well, that's talking about in heaven, Steve, isn't it? No, because we have received the blank fruits of it all. What is it? First fruits of it all. We, can I just say this? You're already imperishable. Do you realize that? Oh, your physical body is going to die unless Christ returns before then. But we're no longer... Children of the dust. We're children of heaven. Because the resurrection has taken place. Christ. And we've already received the first fruits. The first resurrection from death to life. So this whole idea of imperishable is not merely looking out to that day in the future. It is right now. Right here. Today. Yes, we still have a perishable body. And someday we will reach that final culmination when all we will be is imperishable. But until that day, we are still already imperishable. We already are. Because of the resurrection. Because of what Christ has accomplished in the resurrection.
Yes, there's still something more to come. And ultimately, death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? But that's the way it is right now. Right now. You know, we talk about Christ's work on the cross. Destroyed the power of sin. Destroyed the power of Satan. And destroyed the power of death, right? But that's inaccurate to say that way. Do you realize that? That's really inaccurate. Sure. At the end of Christ's life, he said on the cross, what? What was the last words? It is finished. And it was, right? What does that mean? What's finished? The, uh, no. The outpouring of wrath. The wrath of God. The outpouring of the wrath of God for your trespasses and my trespasses. The wrath was poured out and it was completed. That make sense? It was completed. And Jesus' last words were, It is finished. But according to Paul here, death, death being conquered, death is swallowed up in victory, no more sting in death, that's a resurrection thing. That's not a death thing. That's a resurrection thing. The resurrection caused death to no longer have power over us. It broke the, the, the power and the sting and the reality of the finalness of death. It destroyed it. It wasn't, it wasn't the death of Christ. It was the resurrection of Christ who did that. You could argue that ultimately, and I would argue it very strongly, ultimately... Satan's power completely broken. Certainly the cross is involved in it, but so is the resurrection. Because Satan couldn't keep him in the grave. Satan had no power to keep him in the grave. He walked out three days later. So you see, that's why I would argue that for Paul, at least, and I would argue the rest of them as well, resurrection is front and center. More so even than the crucifixion. That may sound really radical. Let's wrap up the last two verses here. And I'm going to pick you one more verse and we'll be done. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's referencing the things of first importance. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Resurrection! That's the point. Now, one more verse, and we'll be done. Sorry it's going so long. Romans chapter 4. In case you think what I said was heresy, about the resurrection being like super important and almost more important than the crucifixion, as important as the crucifixion is. Just to pick a spot, starting verse 23 of chapter 4 of Romans 4. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. What are we talking about here? Resurrection, right? Did you hear it? Resurrection? 
Then the very next verse, the last verse of chapter 4, who was delivered for our what? Trespasses. Our transgressions, our trespasses. Wait a second, what does he say next? And raised for our justification. You get the sense that resurrection is really kind of important? We like to think of our justification was, was accomplished purely and simply by crucifixion. That's not what he said. And remember we started out with crucifixion, no resurrection means nothing. The resurrection is the key. Crucifixion had to happen and it is essential, absolutely essential, the way it happened and why it happened and all the rest. But ultimately our justification. And the idea of justification here, I just want to, we, we think about justification this way. Just as if I had never sinned. Never sinned. Justification. That's how we typically think of justification. You know what Paul's referencing here? He's referencing something a lot bigger than that. It's not just, just as, I've ne- as if I've never sinned. But the idea, he says, he was raised for our, our, our justification, is the idea that this just as if I had never sinned affects us, changes us, radically alters the direction of our lives. Justification has a dramatic effect, an absolutely life-altering effect, and the resurrection power is it. Well, that's all I wanted to say this morning. Resurrection. Can you believe he died on the cross for us? More importantly, not minimizing crucifixion, can you believe he rose? And not just that he rose again, but that his resurrection has an eternal effect on us today. I would argue that the resurrection could probably come with at least 15 or 20 incredibly crucial future years of Resurrection Sunday, and not before we'll talk about them. But 15 or 20 different dramatic perspectives of resurrection in the that we desperately need to wrap our minds around and understand. We need to wake up from our stupor, our drunken stupor. We need to wake up and remember the resurrection and meditate on, cogitate on the resurrection. And when we do, you know what will happen? We won't go on sinning. How could we? Quite to the contrary, we will go out and we will say, I'm going to die maybe. Because I know there's a resurrection. To not live that way or think that way is to deny the resurrection to our shame and to our ultimate destruction. So let's worship Christ together. Thank you, Lord, for dying. In light of today and in light of this passage and other passages, thank you. For not just resurrecting, but as a result of your resurrecting, resurrecting us from death to life. And yet another resurrection yet to come. We resurrect from natural to pure supernatural. For your glory and praise. Help us to know that and understand it. To revel in the resurrection. Change us. In your name I pray. Amen.